Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyal Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and we are recording today's episode about uh, two hours after the verdict came in in a trial that we've been talking about, the trial of former officer Derek Chauvin for the death of George Floyd. We now have the results in that trial, and that is guilty on all counts, meaning guilty on second-degree murder, on third-degree murder, and on second-degree manslaughter. The jury deliberated for, I believe, about 11 hours and reached their verdict in near record speed. Obviously, that is a unanimous verdict. We have with us today Tammy Abdullah of USA Today. She covers criminal justice. She has been a reporter for the Associated Press, the Los Angeles Times, and KPCC, an NPR family station out here in Los Angeles. She has been covering this trial from start to finish. Tammy, welcome. Thank you for passing judgment with us. Thanks for having me, Jessica. The verdict just came out. We just heard from the jury. If it's a fair question, are you surprised? Um, well, I'll tell you that every attorney I spoke with on this, and I spoke with a lot, local, national, they all sort of expected a guilty verdict uh, based on the evidence that was showed to the jury and presented by um, the prosecution. That said, you can never, you know, as you well know, you can never um, predict what a jury will do and how they will uh, decide, especially because a single holdout, right, could change the ultimate decision, um, perhaps a compromise verdict or a hung jury. And those were the two other options I think people thought most likely to occur. Yeah, I, I mean, I had the same feeling, which is this is a really strong case for the prosecution. All three counts and listeners, we have a prior episode just from yesterday about this, but all three counts dealt with unintentional murder. So the prosecution did not have to prove intent for the murder, for the killing in order to have guilty verdicts. But I still felt like you, know, you don't know until you know now. And you said, you know, it's hard to predict juries. Could you talk to us a little bit? I want to go through the case chronologically. Sure. So first, let's talk about the jury selection. How much were you able to follow in terms of, I know not everybody can be in the courtroom all the time, obviously, but um, what were your impressions of the jury selection? Did you think one side was doing a more careful job? Did this seem like it was a good cross-section, that it was a true jury of your peers? What were your general impressions? Well, I'll tell you that the jury, ultimately, that, that came out of jury selection, uh, many folks said it was one of the more diverse juries that this county has ever seen. Hennepin County, it's about 74% um, you know, white. And the jury of, of 12 people had four black people on it. You know, um, so in and of itself, that's that's a, a, a far cry from seventy four percent white. Um, it's it's a greater improvement. And during selection, I thought both sides did a fairly good job of questioning jurors to sort of. I mean, there's a whole strategy to it, right? You're trying to figure out what they actually believe. Um, but that said, there were a number of jurors that that really tried to sell themselves for the trial. 
um, you know, especially the first two jurors that ended up making it onto the panel, um, they wanted to be on it. And it was very clear from their answers. And so you never really know what they actually think, especially if they want to be on the trial. And they ended up getting on onto the panel and, and being um, part of this trial. And so, um, you know, those were the, those were sort of the the things you you can't really account for during the selection process. And there was one juror who I understand has some medical background. I believe was a nurse in a cardiology unit. I apologize if I'm slightly misstating this. Um, when you saw this person being questioned, were you thinking the defense is going to strike somebody who's essentially another expert when it comes to some of these issues? Yeah, that's a great question. When she came up, we all thought, you know, me and my colleagues all thought that she would not end up making the panel, or at least I personally did because of her background. But that said, you know, um, she was asked if she could um, not utilize her own knowledge and rely on what is presented solely in the, you know, in the courtroom. And she said she could. And that's, you know, they can't just cut her because of her background. You know, but if she says that she can't, then that is a reason to cut her. Right. And and then, of course, each side has an unlimited number of four cause uh, strikes, and then they can also strike people um, based on their feeling that we just don't want this person on the jury as long as it's not motivated by, for instance, you know, uh, racially discriminatory purposes. That's so fascinating that there were people who were trying to sell themselves for the jury. Were there also people who you thought were really reticent, like, oh, my gosh, please don't pick me. I do not want to sit here. For sure. There definitely were, um, you know, folks who just had a heavy workload. You know, they, they couldn't they couldn't manage their workload and also sit on the jury. There were there were folks who, um, you know, who were like, I can't I can't. Uh, uh, do my studies. I mean, there were all sorts of um, interesting reasons why people couldn't make it. Um, you know, there was a there was a gentleman who was who was just really scared. You know, he was worried about um, being on such a high profile case and the potential outcome. Interestingly enough, um, a lot of those folks, uh, or a good number of them, were actually white men and older white men in some cases, and so that definitely had an impact on the jury. And the outcome of the jury in terms of, of what it looked like. What was your impression of the judge's interactions with the jurors? That's something I always, I always think, even with cameras in the courtroom, it's hard to get a full read on how the judge is really interacting with those you know, 12 to 14 people in the box. Well, in Minnesota especially, and I found this interesting, I was talking with an attorney about this. And he was telling me that there is this huge effort to not um, inconvenience jurors in Minnesota. So, you know, while in other places and jurisdictions, you know, they might be like, uh, you know, keep the jury waiting or they're hanging around while the council gets their stuff in order. Here it's like, hey, council, get your stuff together. And, um, and you know, we're, we have a jury waiting. And so in this case, uh, the judge was very good with the jury, as I understand they tend to be, very respectful of them. Um, he always ensured that any time he had, you know, a crossword to say or um, concerns with either the prosecution or the defense, their behavior, or, or even a witness, that that was all done while the jury was not 
in the room so that he didn't, um, you know, taint their perception of a witness or taint his, you know, their perception of the prosecution or the defense. Yeah, that I remember, and the judges who I've been able to either work for or interact, they always said, look, the scarcest resource we have is the jury, and please be mindful of their time. I think that's so important. So this trial was obviously televised. All eyes were on every person in the courtroom. Was there a general sense of how Judge Cahill was doing? Yes. And um, actually, I wrote about this issue of cameras in the courtroom and how they, you know, um, allow for more access to watching the trial. But also, you know, there's been a historic, historic problems with cameras in the courtroom. Um, everyone often thinks of the O.J. Simpson trial, um, you know, for those who are in Los Angeles or, or who are more into criminal justice stories, maybe the Menendez brothers. Um, but when I when I spoke with folks here, and I, and I spoke with actually John Burris, um, who represented Rodney King, so he's not in Minneapolis, but we spoke early on, and what he told me was that, you know, you can have cameras in the courtroom, but you need to really make sure that the, um, the judge really needs to like sort of have an iron fist of control over what happens, because otherwise things can sort of devolve into a circus, and he used that word circus. Um, which I found, uh, you know, I found interesting. Um, but, you know, I think he was really thinking of the Simpson trial. And my understanding is that Judge Cahill was also thinking of the Simpson trial, as were a lot of the attorneys um, when they were discussing and looking at cameras in the courtroom. There were efforts to prevent it by the prosecution. They were very unhappy about having it because of worries that it would devolve into, you know, an O.J. Simpson-esque situation. Um, but ultimately, because of COVID, Judge Cahill um, allowed cameras because, you know, a person is um, allowed to have pub a public trial. And that is very unique. This is not normal in Minnesota. Um, this is really the first time for this type of trial. And, um, you know, I think people have found that Judge Cahill did a really good job of of making sure that people were um, exhibiting the proper decorum throughout proceedings. He kept a really tight lid on that, Mister for everyone, Officer for Derek Chauvin, that people weren't interrupting each other, and just forcing people to to keep things, um, you know, uh, proper at every turn. He, you know, uh, you could say he micromanaged the trial, but I'm not. I'm not sure that's entirely accurate. Um, but he really kept things under control. Do you think that this is going to break the dam in the sense that now? judges, prosecutors, defense attorneys will say, okay, there's really nothing to fear. These are public rooms. These are not private boardrooms. A courtroom is a public place. And are we going to see now more trials, not the one-off kind of trial of the century where you and I are talking about it, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the quote unquote typical trial where it's just normal. Yep. There's a camera in the back of the courtroom. It's a good question. I think that this pandemic has really led a lot of states and jurisdictions to try using um, cameras and Zoom, you know, Zoom to hold their hearings. And my understanding is that, um, you know, Zoom is not quite a, you know, a camera in the courtroom situation, but it does enable the public to sign on and watch perhaps more easily than um, having to physically go to a courtroom. My understanding is that um, there are jurisdictions that are sort of attempting to at least make 
Zoom a possibility. But for physical cameras in the courtroom, I'm not sure, and this is just my personal thought, I'm not sure how willing people are to make that change in a rapid sense. Even though this trial went well, um, it's very, you know, it, it was clear to me that, it, you know, a lot of people can consider it judge. Uh, it depends on the judge, right? If the judge is able to handle it, um, possibly the ensuing publicity, and if you can sort of limit concerns by either side about, um, you know, what might happen if people are watching, then, um, you know, I think a judge is more likely to do that. So I'm, I'm really not sure. Yeah, well, of course, it changed. I mean, videos changed this case, having the video of George Floyd's death, uh, which we can now call a murder, legally speaking, because of the verdict. Mm-hmm. Um, and then having the video of the trial, I think, completely changed um, our perception of both. Now, getting back to the trial, uh, we talked about jury selection. We talked about the judge. Um, briefly, after the opening statements, I did have a very kind of specific feeling of how the pr- parties were doing. Um, was there a sense almost that after the opening statements, the prosecution is winning this case, it's for them to lose? Or um, am I overplaying now with the benefit of hindsight how well the prosecution did, frankly, with opening statements? I think you're probably right. They they came in with a very strong hand. And I recall speaking to people at the time who felt that, you know, they'd done an amazing job in their openings and really set themselves up and set up their theory of the case moving forward. That was not something that the defense did as well uh, throughout the case, but certainly they didn't sort of set up that theory and, you know, a, a storyline throughout um, that they would push uh, push throughout the case like the state did. Right. The state had this very specific theory of the case that I think they stayed with consistently, which is we're going to show you this video and jurors, you can believe this video. You can believe what you see. And the 38 witnesses, um, well, I'll ask for your sense, but my sense was the 38 witnesses were there to support the video, meaning to support what the jury could see for themselves, but not to paint a picture out of whole cloth. Well, I think it was mixed. Um, I think that uh, certainly a lot of the witnesses on the states um, on the state side, and, and even uh, a couple of them, were there to for them to be able to add, you know, exhibits, portions of video, um, you know, aspects or views to admit it into evidence for the overall um, trial. But there were other witnesses. Um, for example, you know, they had um, a, a nine-year-old girl testify who didn't necessarily have to be there, but it was almost like they were going to call every person that they could bring up and, you know, to let them testify about their trauma. Now, returning to that nine-year-old girl, obviously a minor, there were multiple minors there that day. And what's interesting is that the prosecution is asking for um, an upward departure, like an increased sentence for, um, for Chauvin based on aggravating factors. And they submitted some proposed aggravating factors. And one of those is the presence of a minor. Now, um, you know, the final sort of copy of what that will be and what Judge Cahill will decide, because Chauvin waived having the jury decide whether or not he should get a a higher sentence. Um, We don't know if that's going to be part of it, but, but certainly it sort of assumed that one of those 
one of the factors um, that uh, that are aggravating will will be um, will be decided upon by Cahill, and he'll get a, a much higher sentence than sort of uh, the baseline. Yeah. So you brought us inside the courtroom, and actually, let's stay inside the courtroom for a little bit, and then I want to ask you. Wh- what was the feeling on the street? What was the sentiment on the ground? But Mm -hmm. we talked about the opening um, statements and a little bit of the witnesses. My feeling was, and you mentioned these minor witnesses that just on a human level, it was such a gut punch to hear from them. And it was such a gut punch to hear from even the witnesses who weren't minors, but the cashier from cup foods who, um, you know, had some, I would describe it as sur- survivor's guilt dealing mm-hmm. with what had happened. At that, that was a moment where I felt, I, I can't see the jury, but it seems like this trial is irretrievably turning in favor of the prosecution. Was that also your sense from covering it or was that just a particularly impactful day? I think it was a particularly impactful day. And the reason I say that is because you know, the defense had not yet presented their case. And so I found it, I I think a lot of people found it very hard, um, you know, to, to truly say how things were, were turning. I mean, that said, you're right. The defense, I mean, even on cross-examination, the, the several points that were pushed, uh, putting forward did not seem to be grasping the jury in the same way. And, you know, um, only one print reporter and one broadcast reporter was allowed inside the courtroom every day, and we all rotated. So I ended up in the courtroom two days, but that was during proceedings um, and not during um, the uh, jury selection. And what was really obvious when I was there is that, um, and, and it was further down while the defense was uh, presenting their case, it was very clear that the jurors from pool reports had been very attentive when the prosecution was making its case when when doctors, uh, you know, like Dr. Tobin, the pulmonologist, when he spoke to them, they were very attentive. But when the defense's witnesses, their expert witnesses, especially who were their key witnesses, spoke, they were a lot less interested, a lot less attentive, not taking as many notes. And frankly, they seemed rather tired. <laughs> That's one of those things where obviously because of how the cameras were situated for very good reasons, I did not have a sense of that at all. And your perspective, obviously, it's I just didn't know that the jury seemed markedly different when it came to the prosecution witnesses and the defense witnesses. Are there any other things? I mean, how different was it for you being outside the courtroom versus watching those two days of proceedings? Certainly being in the courtroom is very different because first of all, it's like anything. It's like, you know, people go to the White House and the Oval Office and they say it's a lot smaller than it looks. That courtroom is a lot smaller than it appears on camera. And so when you walk in, I mean, everyone is spaced out, but because everyone is spaced out, you're a lot closer uh, in, a, in a strange way as a reporter to everyone. And, um, and so you can see what they're whispering about. You can hear... Uh, concerns that might be spoken. Um, There's a lot of back and forth that might occur that's not on camera. And you also see the jurors. You see them, you know, if they're socializing, um, if they're talking amongst each other, um, if they're stretching, if they're tapping their feet, you know, uh, one woman kept, um, 
you know, checking out her fingernails and like, you know, uh, picking at her nails. And so I would say, though, that, you know, the jury was very, very attentive and almost studious throughout. And even when they were less attentive, markedly, in my mind, less attentive, they were still taking occasional notes. It was just they appear tired. It was it was toward the end of the uh, the week after multiple weeks of listening to testimony. So so that's that it is different. But, you know, I think that most people got a good sense of the trial from watching it on uh, TV. So we've been inside the courtroom with you. Now, could you tell us a little bit about what it was like to be there? What was the sentiment? How different was it um, from the rest of us who were streaming on our phones or computers or just watching the reports at night or reading about the reports periodically? Yeah, I mean... This place has been really, you know, people say on edge and it sounds almost um, like a cliche, but truly on edge. I mean, you, you, would, you would go get, grab food somewhere and you'd hear people talking about the trial. It was inescapable. And especially in the last several days when you had um, uh, National Guard soldiers starting to take up, uh, you know, street corners and um, carrying these guns around. Um, I think there were several hundred that were brought into town um, to deal uh, to, to to deal with the response um, given last uh, last summer's uh, you know protests that uh, some of which turned violent and really re- uh, resulted in many millions of dollars of property damage. Um, but you know, I mean, today has been for a lot of people, a massive relief. I mean, there was so much pent up tension. I spoke with an attorney last night, late last night, um, who was, you know, um, so nervous. He was unable, I mean, so this is a black man and a black attorney in the, you know, in the community here. And um, he believed, he believes Chauvin's guilty. And um, when I spoke with him last night, he was so nervous, he could not even make a prediction. He did not want to jinx it. He didn't want to say a word. And what you saw today is people um, just erupting in relief. Um, You know, the family spoke. Um, They did a news conference and, you know, um, (laughs) they're saying hallelujah. I mean, they were beyond it, you know. And there was a lot of talk about what needs to happen next, I'll say, right? There was a lot of like, this is not the be all end all. Um, and, you know, I, I was actually, I did an analysis on this, uh, on sort of the verdict takeaway and what it, what people can take from it. And really, you know, when I spoke with folks about it, it was like, sadly, this case is so unique for those in the criminal justice world that, you know, it doesn't really match up with the facts of like a lot of shooting cases, right? Where, um, a police can say, you know, uh, per the law, that they were making a split-second decision. And um, and in a lot of ways, uh, the folks I spoke with, they say that the law um, really favors police officers the way it's written. Um, in this case, with these different sets of facts, uh, we saw a guilty verdict and people were beyond happy. So that was going to be my last question for you. And I'm just going to pick up on what you already segued us into, which is, this case seems to have been asked to bear so much weight, to mean so much. And it obviously it means an extraordinary amount. A man lost his life. And it also seems to me that it's been asked to be, you know, 
to tell us about the criminal justice system in general. And I'm wondering if as a result of not necessarily the verdict, but the trial in general, do you think that any of these 130 you know, pending police reform bills throughout the nation, is this now the moment where we're going to see more legislative change, where we're going to see maybe even change on the federal level as well? Or do we just have this moment? Do you know we have a collective sigh of relief and then we go back to business as usual? You know, um, that remains to be seen. You know, these legislatures passing these bills um, or the federal bill passing. I think the problem a lot of people spoke to is that the country is so divided. You know, I spoke with a retired police chief uh, from California and he told me, and, and, and he used to be president of a, of a nonprofit think tank, the National Police Foundation. And, and what he told me was that this is certainly a, a, a this is really a rare case. Um, every aspect of it is rare. Um, but he didn't believe this would have a lasting impact, at least on policing, because so many cops believe that, you know, there's a war on American policing. And that's, those are the words he used. And in the legislatures, we've seen a wave of bills recently that attempts to prevent folks from engaging in protesting. Ultimately, the language is so broad, even though they're anti-riot bills, that it prevents them from going out and utilizing their First Amendment rights and um, assembling. And a lot of critics have have, uh, have said that it's a huge problem. I mean, the Florida governor, DeSantis, uh, signed such a bill yesterday. And so I think that a lot of these bills are coming from Republican-controlled legislatures, but those same legislatures are the ones that are also going to be evaluating whether or not to proceed with these types of reform bills. I mean, these were 93 bills around anti-protesting in 31 states. So this is not just a, a, a small thing. Um, and they were all put forward in light of what happened to George Floyd and after his death. So this is in the last 10-ish months. So to your question specifically, I think that most people I've spoken to would be rather um, uh, timid about the fact that this uh, that these bills will pass. But, you know, they're still hopeful that maybe this moment will take people further. Well, I certainly hope that you will come back and talk to us about what happens, not a few minutes, but a few weeks, months, and maybe even years after this verdict. Tammy Abdullah, thank you for passing judgment with us. Thanks so much. Tammy Abdullah of USA Today. She covers criminal justice. She has been a reporter for the Associated Press, the Los Angeles Times, and KPCC. I am so grateful to you for sharing your insights at the end of a very long day. You can find Tammy on Twitter at LA Tams. You can find me on Twitter at Levinson Jessica. The show at Past Judgment Pod. We wish everybody a nice day and we will talk to you very soon. Thank you.